Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Brad Wilson with the Madison Program here at Princeton. Thank you for coming out for our second uh, lecture of the year. We began, uh, some of you were there, I know. I see some familiar faces. We had Walter Murphy recently for Constitution Day uh, to talk about uh, basically executive power. Uh, and uh, so I think we were, that got us off to a rousing start. Uh, I'm delighted uh, today to have our first lecture, uh, actually I guess it's our second lecture in the Alpheus T. Mason uh, lecture series in constitutional law and political thought, the quest for freedom. Um, our lecturer today is Professor Matthew Frank. Uh, who is in the Department of Political Science and is chairman of the Political Science Department at Radford University in Virginia. Uh, he's been teaching there since 1989, teaches constitutional law, American politics, and political philosophy. Uh, Professor uh, Frank earned his BA from Virginia Wesleyan and his graduate degrees, his MA and his PhD, uh, from Northern Illinois University. He has been a Fulbright Scholar uh, in American Studies at Yonsei University in Seoul, Korea, and a Salvatore Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, he authored a, a very fine book, Against the Imperial Judiciary, the Supreme Court versus the Sovereignty of the People, uh, with the University Press of Kansas, and is co-editor and co-author of a book with Richard Stevens, uh, titled Sober as a Judge, The Supreme Court and Republican Liberty. Uh, he uh, also uh, writes frequently, I won't say daily, but, but uh, at least uh, 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 very often for something called Bench Memos, which is a blog on the Supreme Court and constitutional law that is uh, on the National Review online website. I recommend that, and I recommend Matt's contributions especially. Uh, so uh, I'm delighted to introduce you, to you Matt Frank, uh, who will be discussing with us uh, the due process clause, substantive due process. Uh, Matt is on this subject, is on all subjects having to do with constitutional law, uh, running his own Straight Talk Express, uh, and I'm glad to introduce him. Matt? Yeah, right. We have to do something a little high tech now, since there's one mic in between the doors. Are we okay? All right. I'm very glad to be here. I'm uh, particularly. Uh, pleased to uh, have been invited to the James Madison program here at Princeton, which I've admired for a very long time. And uh, nice to be here under the good offices of my old friend Brad Wilson, uh, whose work I've admired for a very long time. Um, I don't think I'll use the chalk. Okay. Is this... Uh, Yep, except it's a little far away. Well, I'll try to project, be the old lecture hall instructor today. Uh, my title is The Supreme Court 
and the inversion of the due process clauses from a judicial rule against arbitrary power to the power of arbitrary judicial rule. In his ambitious recent book called America's Constitution, a biography, the, the eminent Yale legal scholar Akhil Reed Amar refers to the second sentence of the 14th Amendment as, quote, the handiest constitutional tool in the judicial kit bag, a constitutional provision deployed in court more often than any other, end quote. That sentence to which Amar refers actually contains three different clauses, two of which, the one concerning due process of law and the other equal protection of the laws, are serious competitors with each other for the title of most overused, abused, and judicially distorted clause in the Constitution. Their history is inseparable from that of the growth to dangerous proportions of judicial power over American republicanism. Handy tools indeed. I will talk today about only one of these clauses, the one on due process of law. I should mention at the outset that there are two due process clauses. There is one in the Fifth Amendment, added as part of the Bill of Rights in 1791, and written in the passive voice to restrain the federal government. Nor shall any person be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And then there is the one in the 14th Amendment, to which Amar referred, added in 1868 and written in the active voice to restrain the state governments. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. These texts are nearly identical and are rightly taken to mean exactly the same thing, or things, so I hope I will be forgiven if I frequently lapse into speaking of due process in the singular, despite there being these two separate clauses. What these clauses appear on their common face to say is that, is that we can be deprived of our property, of our liberty, or even of life itself, so long as something called due process of law is provided to us beforehand. What that something is, is our subject. But we immediately encounter a difficulty in our legal history. Namely, that two very different concepts of due process are sharply distinguished, with the odd result that the singular principle, due process, is said to do simultaneously two completely different, even incompatible kinds of work, one called procedural due process and the other called substantive due process. Now perhaps I should have kept the chalk, but I'll, I'll, I'll do without. And remember, this distinction between the procedural and the substantive varieties of due process bears no relationship to the separate appearance of the due process language in two different places in the Constitution. For we can speak of procedural due process protected by either the Fifth or the Fourteenth Amendment, and likewise of substantive due process being protected by either amendment. Wielding the second of these, the substantive variety of due process, the Supreme Court has periodically swung a scythe through democratically chosen social policies that offend the Court's preferred vision of liberty or property. Once, it was slavery that was protected by the justices in the name of due process. Then it was exploitative industrial workers, or pardon me, industrial employers. Lately, the court has struck down laws that trammel the, quote, most intimate and personal choices a person may make in a lifetime, referring to abortion restrictions, or those that interfere with the decision of adults re regarding, quote, how to conduct their private lives in matters pertaining to sex, end quote, referring to certain sexual practices proscribed by a state legislature. How did the innocuous term due process of law 
come to be such a powerful tool for the judicial making and unmaking of public policy. By way of warming to my subject, I will begin by mentioning that I have been at work for some time now, it seems like forever, on a book that takes up certain words and phrases that form the commonplace furnishings of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence and asks of them such questions as, where and when did this expression come into use by the justices? Did it originate elsewhere, say, in legal scholarship and constitute a borrowing by the court? Has its meaning changed over time? In what ways, with what effects? Does the term adequately convey the meaning of a valid constitutional concept? Did it once and now no longer? Or has it been a dubious innovation from its inception? Does the expression have a protean or plastic character so that it serves to liberate rather than to constrain the uses of judicial power in the name of the Constitution? These are the sorts of questions I'm interested in asking about a lot of different uh, terms of art the court uses. Today we can start with some simple reflections on the adjectives here. A procedural right is one that requires the government to enforce its policies, it matters not what they are, in such a way and by such processes that we are treated fairly under the rules laid down. A substantive right is a right against the imposition of certain kinds of policies on us under any circumstances. In this instance, it mattering a great deal what the policies are, therefore, and there being no right way, no rules laid down, that can render the policy itself legitimate. Hence, it is often said that the first phrase we are considering, procedural due process, is a redundancy, a self-repeating expression insofar as procedure and process are synonyms, while the second, substantive due process, is an oxymoron, the first and third words expressing notions that are contrary or incapable of coexisting, as in the phrase green pastel redness used by one scholar years ago. Whether this is, in the end, the most telling criticism of each term will be part of our story. But the immediate conclusion reached by many scholars is that the redundancy in procedural due process is a repetition of something true about the constitutional language, while the self-contradiction in substantive due process is a sign of something false about it. In short, that the only real due process is the procedural kind and that the substantive kind is a fraud and an imposition on our constitutional law. This conclusion is invited even by the distinction between them offered by a defender of substantive due process, Robert Riggs, quoting Riggs now, under the procedural component of the due process clause, courts and other tribunals are constrained to act by fair procedures. By virtue of the substantive component, courts identify fundamental values not explicit in the Constitution, translate them into substantive rights, and then deny to government, including legislatures, the power to infringe those rights without some compelling justification." End quote. Before constructing an argument about what to think of this distinction and the sense it might make, let us do a little historical detective work. The practice now known as substantive due process is much older than the phrase itself. The first justice of the Supreme Court to use the exact phrase was Justice Wiley Rutledge in 1948. And he did so just after distinguishing between, quote, substantive individual rights, end quote, and, quote, procedural ones, end quote. In relatively short order, the phrases substantive due process and procedural due process came to be standard expressions on the court, and they have been used ever since. But 20 years before 
the justices of the, of the court began to use it in their opinions, the phrase substantive due process first appeared in a law review note by an anonymous law student, 1928. As is the want of students everywhere, this one may have been in search of a shorthand expression that would simplify and encapsulate a complex system of ideas. And the handy three-word phrase seemed to do the trick. It's possible that rather than coining the phrase, the student first heard it used in a classroom like this one. In published works, senior scholars were content to grapple a while longer with the complexities as they presented themselves in the cases, but eventually adopted the shorthand phrase as well. Edward S. Corwin, for instance, known to people around this campus, had written at length in 1909 about what we now call substantive due process without ever using the phrase. Unknown to him, hadn't been invented yet. But by 1942, Benjamin F. Wright could devote several pages to the same subject and use the phrase with complete unselfconsciousness. The law student who first used this expression was not working altogether from the ground up, however. For several decades, justices of the court had been insisting that due process of law concerned matters of substance, not merely matters of form. As far back as 1884, an opinion for the court had held that due process, quote, must be held to guarantee not particular forms of procedure, but the very substance of individual rights to life, liberty, and property, end quote. There were a number of cases over the next several decades in which members of the court made remarks of this kind, though, as we shall see, they could mean a variety of things. But in an opinion that may have strongly influenced the student who coined substantive due process just a year later, Justice Louis Brandeis concurred in the 1927 free speech case of Whitney versus California, saying this, despite arguments to the contrary which had seemed to me persuasive, it is settled that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment applies to matters of substantive law as well as to matters of procedure. Thus, all fundamental rights comprised within the term liberty are protected by the federal constitution from invasion by the states. The context of this remark of Brandeis's was the application of the First Amendment's protection of freedom of speech to a state government through the vehicle of the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause, a doctrine known as selective incorporation of the Bill of Rights, a, a phrase itself worthy of considerable treatment. But for our purpose today, it is important that Brandeis meant that the Due Process Clause requires a judgment by a court of law about whether a generally applicable statute expresses a valid policy choice by a legislature in the face of a claim of an individual not to be governed in any way, whatever, by such a policy. With that reading of the distinction between substance on the one hand and procedure or form on the other, it was only a matter of time before the adjective substantive came to modify due process itself. And the modern due process vocabulary came into being in the practice and the study of constitutional law. Now, my argument about this modern vocabulary is simply this. The adoption of the expression, substantive due process, for a particular doctrinal idea, whether applauded or condemned, wrought a great and continuing confusion in constitutional law. It will not do simply to say that substantive due process is a self-contradiction and that procedural due process, while redundant, is the only proper interpretation of due process of law. The distinction is a false one drawing the line in the wrong place between two different readings of this legal principle. In many cases, the justices who came before Brandeis were quite right to say 
that due process concerns substance as well as procedure. But they did not mean what Brandeis and everyone else for the last three quarters of a century means by substance. In order to see our modern confusion in a clearer light, it is necessary to climb into our wayback machine and go much further back in history to the original understanding of due process of law, an understanding that is not fully captured either by procedural due process or by substantive due process or by both of them together. Due process of law comes into American constitutional law by way of English history, stretching as far back as the Magna Carta. The Great Charter, first exacted from King John in 1215 under threat of being deposed by the barons of England, stated in its 39th chapter that no free man could be imprisoned, exiled, outlawed, deprived of his freehold, that is his land, or his liberties, or any otherwise destroyed except by lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. In 1363, in one of many subsequent confirmations of Magna Carta by the Parliament, this one a statute promulgated by Edward III, the language about the law of the land was changed to read that none of these deprivations could occur, quote, without due process of law, end quote. Roughly three centuries after that, Sir Edward Cook, in his great commentary, The Institutes of the Laws of England, spoke for tradition in treating but by the law of the land and without due process of law as wholly interchangeable terms. Much later than that, in the new United States, both phrases made their way into constitutions and were universally understood, as in England, to mean the same thing. Several state constitutions contained law of the land clauses. Some still do. While others contained due process of law clauses. And the latter phrasing was chosen for inclusion in the Fifth Amendment of the Federal Constitution and later in the Fourteenth Amendment as well. At first glance, though, it is not obvious why law of the land and due process of law should be taken to be equivalent expressions. Start with the older phrase. What is an alternative way to deprive someone of his life, liberty, or property without doing it according to law? If the perpetrator of the deprivation is a private citizen, we would call such behavior murder, kidnapping, or theft. And if the perpetrator is a person acting in the name of public authority, why, we should call it exactly the same thing. If there were no law previously enacted and known, that authorized the deprivation. But what if all political power is held by a single individual, an absolute monarch invested with all public authority, and he issues a formal command that the life, liberty, or property of person A and no one else shall be taken from him, and the command relies upon no prior law for justification of the taking? Is that, by virtue of having issued from a public authority, is that a lawful deprivation? one that satisfies the terms of the original Magna Carta that no deprivations shall occur but by the law of the land? It is not. It is more properly called a decree. And it need not be confined, as in our example, to a single targeted individual, nor need it issue from an absolute monarch. We may call it an act of power, but not an act of law. For the essence of a law is that it differs from a decree in two ways in being impersonal, general, or neutral in character, and in being known or knowable 
before we are affected by it. Laws govern a people by informing them publicly of the polity's expectations regarding their behavior, and if need be, by punishing breaches of those expectations. Such punishment, under law, may deprive a man of his property, his freedom, or his life. But to dispossess him, to imprison him, or to condemn him to death by the decree, by the whim of sovereign power, where no law provides for such treatment, is to exert mere force over him, with no other authority for it than that the raw power exists to do it. Such a decree has the character of a particularistic judgment, however just it may arguably be in a given instance, but not of a judgment that could have been foreseen by one with knowledge of the law. The law is something we can know and to which we can conform our actions. A decree is a thunderbolt out of the clear blue sky. Such decrees by the kings of England, in the typical case, commands to transfer the property of one man to another, were at the root of the demand for this clause in Magna Carta and for subsequent confirmations of, it, of the principle by successive kings, as the problem did not go away overnight. And it is probably no accident that the wording of the clause came in some versions to be due process of law, as the courts of law became more established institutions in England, and as something like a nascent separation of powers began to exist. For notice again the character of particularistic judgment in ruling by decree. Where law rules, particular judgments in particular cases must still, of course, be made, and therefore will not have the characteristic of, uh, pardon me, but, but they will be made in accordance with general rules and established principles, and therefore will not have the characteristic of surprise or of commanding for a special case. And as English courts emerged as the regular scenes of such judgments being made, so too emerged regular processes for reaching various sorts of judgments and for holding parties to account. Notice, calling to answer, subpoena, indictment, warrant, judgment, condemnation, a myriad of such court processes came into being, many with their own peculiar writs issuing from the bench. And notice that writ is still synonymous with process in certain legal contexts, as in the expression process server for someone who delivers notice via writs of various kinds. Another way to think of this distinction is to consider that lawmaking is prospective. It looks forward, however imperfectly, to future actions and the consequences of those actions. Judgment under the law is retrospective. It looks backward to deeds that have been done and measures them uh, by the prospective rules set down in law. Rule by decree is an unjust shortcut, combining the prospective and the retrospective in a single act. And a shortcut, moreover, that places the two back to front. The ruler looks backward first, not second, choosing a victim who has displeased him, and then remedying the situation by looking forward to a preferable state of affairs in which his victim has suffered harm. And perhaps some chosen favorite has benefited by the same action. And of course, there's been no process whatsoever other than the delivery of the startling news that one's life liberty, or property is now forfeit. Viewed in this light, it is mistaken for any analysis of due process of law to begin by asking whether the principle protects procedural rights or substantive rights. 
the first and foremost question to ask in an actual case is, has a party been subjected to law at all, or instead to a decree? This is no less true in a republic than in a monarchy. For an elected legislature can just as readily rule by decree as by law, even by cloaking decrees in the apparent form of laws. Daniel Webster put his finger on the problem in an argument before the Supreme Court in the 1819 Dartmouth College case that could have come from the pen of Sir Edward Cook himself and was frequently quoted for decades thereafter. This is a long passage from Webster, but bear with me. By the law of the land, says Webster, is most clearly intended the general law, a law which hears before it condemns, which proceeds upon inquiry and renders judgment only after trial. The meaning is that every citizen shall hold his life, liberty, property, and immunities under the protection of the general rules which govern society. Everything which may pass under the form of an enactment is not, therefore, to be considered the law of the land. If this were so, acts of attainder, bills of pains and penalty, acts of confiscation, acts reversing judgments, and acts directly transferring one man's estate to another, legislative judgments, decrees, and forfeitures in all possible forms would be the law of the land. Such a strange construction would render constitutional provisions of the highest importance completely inoperative and void. It would tend directly to establish the union of all powers in the legislature, there would be no general permanent law for courts to administer or for men to live under. The administration of justice would be an empty form, an idle ceremony. Judges would sit to execute legislative judgments and decrees, not to declare the law or to administer the justice of the country. Thus Webster. If we like, we may call the right to enjoy our lives, liberty, and property without being subject to rule by decree a substantive right. Okay, but what exactly is it a right to? To being ruled by prospective laws that are carried out retrospectively by due process. Is it then a substantive right to be governed by lawful procedures? That is just what it looks like. So the distinction between substantive due process and procedural due process, to the extent that scholars claim to find it in the distant past, certainly at any time before the Civil War, begins to look rather silly. And when we turn to more recent legal history, to the liberty of contract rulings at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, or to the rights of privacy rulings of the last 40 years, each said to represent variants of, sub of substantive due process, the distinction obscures more than it reveals by suggesting a fictitious continuity with earlier ages. In short, the substantive procedural distinction simply doesn't do any useful work and instead creates confusion. In, uh, in considering a bit of English legal history a moment ago, I noted the all-too-common occurrence centuries past of the crowns decreeing that one man's property should be transferred to another's possession. Webster spoke of this, too, in the Dartmouth College case when he remarked that legislative acts, quote, directly transferring one man's estate to another, end quote, would not deserve the name of law. This taking from A and giving to B problem was a recurrent example in discussions of the law of due process. 
The earliest appearance of such reasoning in a Supreme Court case was in the opinion of Justice Samuel Chase in Calder v. Bull, 1798, who gave as an example of, quote, an, an act of the legislature, for I cannot call it a law, contrary to the, first, the great first principles of the social compact, a law that takes property from A and gives it to B, end quote. Affirming the principle that legislation must be prospective in character, Chase went on to say that enactments of the sort he condemned were, quote, legislative judgments and an exercise of judicial power, end quote. There we have what I believe is the solution to the puzzle of the early cases allegedly employing substantive due process, a puzzle that has confounded many scholars. The very first principle of due process of law before we come to questions of the forms of process or whether they are the processes that are due, that is fair in the circumstances, is that life, liberty, and property be subject to law and not decree. And this comes to light preeminently as a principle of the separation of powers, a concept that is nascent, as we've seen in early modern English law, but that comes theoretically into its own in the work of Montesquieu, only a few decades before the Americans turned to writing constitutions. Any legislative enactment taking property from A and giving it to B is a violation of due process because it invades the judicial function. Courts take from A and give to B all the time. In the adjudication of debts, contracts, torts, and so on, both under common law principles and under the terms of statutes. The deprivation to which A is subjected for the sake of B may take the form of monetary compensation or, in some cases, a direct transfer of a specific piece of property, real or personal, in which case a court of equity will effect the transfer by decree, a revealing word, as we've seen already. For a legislature to provide for such transfers prospectively in accord with findings of certain rights and wrongs as adjudicated in courts of law is of the essence of lawmaking. But to effect the transfers themselves is the judicial function. And so-called laws directly commanding them are not properly laws and provide none of the essentials of process, let alone a process that is due. If a case considering such a legislative attempt is properly before a court with a relevant law of the land clause or due process of law clause ready to hand, from an applicable constitution, the enactment may properly be invalidated as a violation of the right to hold one's property subject to law. Now, in the case of life or, or liberty, unlike property, it is not possible to take from A and give to B. But lawmakers may declare life or liberty forfeit, as opposed to declaring the terms under which it will be judged forfeit in a court due to the commission of a wrong, and the same problem arises. No prospective general legislation, no process, and a legislative invasion of the judicial function. This is true, by the way, also of the forfeiture of property when it's not taken from A and given to B, but simply taken from A, period, when it's transferred to no other private party. In each, and so far as I know, every one of the cases cited by scholars for the proposition that substantive due process can be found before the Civil War, all but one of them at the state level, the real ground of the decision was this separation of powers principle of due process of law, or the law of the land. 
whether every one of these cases was correctly decided or not, the reasoning in them was a lineal descendant from the reasoning that informed Webster, Cook, and Magna Carta itself. Some scholars have noticed this essential attribute of these cases, yet persisted in calling them substantive due process rulings, or at the very least, harbingers of the doctrine to come in later years. Two cases in particular are often cited as representing the rise of substantive due process in full form just before the Civil War. The first is Weinhammer versus the people, decided by the High Court of New York in 1856. Maybe I do need chalk. That's uh, for the students in the room. Spelt thus. Weinhammer versus the people, 1856. Uh, this it seems to be a case more often cited than read. Uh, that never happens in constitutional law, does it? The New York legislature had passed a highly stringent temperance act, forbidding the sale or even the possession of alcoholic, be alcoholic beverages under almost all circumstances. For the judges in the majority in Weinhammer, the trouble with the law was that it made it a crime to possess a species of property that had been legal the day before the statute took effect, with no way to divest oneself of it legally. All one could legally do, in the view of these judges, was to destroy the property and take a complete loss of its value. This amounted, in their view, to a legislative decree of the forfeiture of property, not in this case targeting named persons or an identifiable class of persons, but targeting a specific form of property, whoever might own it. If they were right, it was a violation of due process of law, an act not looking only prospectively to future behavior, don't sell booze, but simply converting hitherto legal property into contraband wherever it existed in the state's jurisdiction. The dissenting judges viewed the law differently, uh, the New York statute, as providing through various exceptions sufficient opportunity to sell in state or export one's property out of state legally. The law might have radically diminished the value of property in liquor by drawing the exceptions very narrowly, but it did not destroy the property and was not, therefore, a decree of complete forfeiture. But everything in the case turned upon the question whether the legislative act was to be characterized as a law properly understood or as a decree of the forfeiture of property without any recourse to meaningful process. Did the act regulate the uses of property or simply destroy it utterly? None of the judges of the New York court considered it a proper question whether a policy of temperance was reasonable or not, or whether some constitutional liberty existed to possess alcoholic beverages or to traffic in them. The second case said to exemplify the fruition of substantive due process before the Civil War, decided just a year after Weinhammer, is the notorious Dred Scott case, Dred Scott versus Sanford, United States Supreme Court, 1857. In the course of holding for the court that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional in its prohibition of slavery in the federal Louisiana Territory, north of latitude 36 degrees 30 minutes, Chief Justice Roger Taney devoted just a few lines to the act's purported violation of due process, writing that, Quote, the rights of property are united with the rights of person and placed on the same ground by the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, which provides that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, and property. And yes, he used and in that 
paraphrase without quotation marks. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, and property without due process of law. And here's where he states the difficulty with the Act of Congress. And an Act of Congress which deprives a citizen of the United States of his liberty or property merely because he came himself or brought his property into a particular territory of the United States and who had committed no offense against the laws could hardly be dignified with the name of due process of law. End quote. Taney said no more than this on the subject of due process. And he may have had in mind that the act violated due process by simply eliminating an owner's property right in his slave, thus resembling the arguable forfeiture condemned by the New York court in Weinhammer in being a bolt from the blue. If, if, if so, if this is what Taney meant, this was still some distance from affirming the positive right to engage in a certain kind of behavior, notwithstanding a legislative prohibition or regulation of that behavior, which is the pattern of judicial decision-making characteristic of substantive due process as it later came to develop. Notice, after all, that everything hangs in Tani's argument on the minor premise that the slaveholder bringing his slave into this territory had, quote, committed no offense against the laws, end quote. If this were true, Tani's argument would have some merit. But it is false. And the assertion of its truth turns Tani's argument into a classic instance of begging the question. Under the Missouri Compromise, one who brought slaves into the free federal territory and continued to hold them as slaves did indeed commit an offense. And the consequence, under the law, was the loss of any further right so to hold them. That is, their freedom. The law was not a decree of forfeiture directed to slaveholders who had done nothing. It gave ample notice to the slaveholder that if he wished to continue in possession of his slaves, he dare not bring them and hold them as slaves in the territory. As Justice Benjamin Curtis pointed out in demolishing Taney's due process argument in, in his dissent, legislation of this sort had been passed by the Congress several times in the past without anyone thinking it more than an ordinary restriction of the movement of a certain kind of property. And the federal ban on the importation of slaves into the country answered the same description. Tani's argument was prone to collapse under the lightest probing. But on its face, it seemed to hark back to the Webster-Cook-Magna Carta principle against rule by decree and had only a weak connection to substantive due process as it came to be in later years. The same continuity with legitimate principles of due process can be seen in nearly all the post-Civil War cases up to Brandeis's linguistic shift in 1927 that insisted that substance was as important as form in considering whether government deprived persons of liberty or property without due process of law. Justice Matthews, Stanley Matthews, in an 1884 ruling I quoted earlier, Hurtado versus California, explicitly followed Daniel Webster's view of due process and remarked that it was not the, quote, particular forms of procedure, end quote, that mattered so much in considering what a state might do to provide due process, but, quote, the very substance of individual rights to life, liberty, and property, end quote. By which Matthews meant that a range of procedural options was open to the state so long as those it provided satisfied the general principles Notice, hearing before condemning, and giving an opportunity to defend oneself. Similar reasoning about the importance of securing the substance 
the rights guaranteed by due process, whatever the particular forms of process that might be employed, appeared in a number of other cases in the early 20th century. But the reference was always to a substantive right to fair procedures in this one line of cases. On a parallel track, however, in the years following the Civil War, another line of cases was developing, sometimes using similar language about the importance of substance over form, but bringing into constitutional law the new mode of reasoning that we now know as substantive due process. A foreshadowing of what was to come could be seen in two cases, in 1870 and 1871, concerning the constitutionality of a federal law making paper money, legal tender, and the payment of all private debts, even if the debts were contracted before the law's passage. Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase, who was in the majority in the 1870 case and in the minority a year later when the law was restored to validity, Chase argued that it was contrary to due process under the Fifth Amendment, a taking from A to give to B, to force a creditor to accept paper money from his debtor, since paper money had a depreciated value compared to the gold or silver that was the assumed currency in the debt when contracted. As Justice William Strong pointed out for the court in the second of these rulings, the 1871 legal tender cases, due process, quote, has always been understood as referring only to a direct appropriation and not to consequential injuries resulting from the lawful exercise of power. It has never been supposed to have any bearing upon or to inhibit laws that indirectly work harm and loss to individuals, end quote. Chase's opinions in these cases seem to have been the first in which due process was held to forbid a legislative act that neither worked an entire forfeiture of one's life, liberty, or property, nor subjected persons to inadequate and unfair procedures in the administration of law. But we are still one or two steps away from the identification of due process of law with a positive right to engage in conduct prohibited by law, such that the prohibition per se is defeated. The decisive movement towards such an identification came in the slaughterhouse cases of 1873. This case concerned the validity of a Louisiana law that solved the public health problem for the city of New Orleans by confining the trade of slaughtering animals to a district downstream from the city. The law gave one company exclusive control of the trade in three parishes or counties of the state of Louisiana with all butchers compelled to conduct their slaughtering business at the central slaughterhouse, though the company could not refuse any comers. Resentful butchers, wishing to do their trade elsewhere, brought a suit claiming the law violated the new 14th Amendment. Their emphasis in, the, in their argument was on the clause protecting the privileges or immunities of citizens. In a 5-4 ruling, the Supreme Court upheld the statute. In keeping with the issues raised by the parties, the opinions of Justice Samuel Miller for the court and of Justices Stephen, Bradley, uh, Stephen Field, Joseph Bradley, and Noah Swain, each writing separately in dissent. These opinions were mostly focused on that clause, the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. Justice Field, for instance, decried the Louisiana law as establishing a monopoly, which it really didn't, quoted the Declaration of Independence's ringing phrases about 
rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and declared that a citizen's privileges or immunities included the, quote, pursuit of the ordinary avocations of life, end quote, including that of butchering cattle where one will, it seems. It fell to Justices Bradley and Swain, though, to connect all this feverish condemnation to the Due Process Clause. Bradley argued that it violated due process to prohibit people, quote, from following a lawful employment previously adopted, end quote, for, quote, their right of, choi uh, their right of choice is a portion of their liberty. That's strikingly modern language, isn't it? Their right of choice is a portion of their liberty. Their occupation is their property. And Justice Swain gave the most revolutionary reading of due process of law yet seen in our history. Quoting Swain now, Life is the gift of God, and the right to preserve it is the most sacred of the rights of man. Liberty is freedom from all restraints, but such as are justly imposed by law. Beyond that line lies the domain of usurpation and tyranny. Property is everything which has an exchangeable value, and the right of property includes the power to dispose of it according to the will of the owner. Labor is property, and as such merits protection. The right to make it available is next in importance, the rights of life and liberty. Just a line or two later, Swain added that due process is the, quote, application of the law as it exists in the fair and regular course of administrative procedure, end quote. A line that connected back to the more ordinary and traditional sense of due process. Swain was very confused. The fairness of administrative procedures is one way to think about whether a law sets forth restraints justly imposed by law, if what we mean is to inquire whether the restraints, the prohibition or regulation of conduct, whatever they are, are imposed by fair processes, just processes. But if what we mean is to examine whether the policy of restraint itself is a just one, which is what Swain plainly meant, then we are no longer talking about the course of administrative procedure. And therefore, we are no longer talking about or interpreting due process of law at all. These opinions of Bradley and Swain are the true beginnings of substantive due process as we have come to know it over the last century and a quarter. And while for reasons irrelevant to us here, the argument for judicial policy judgments based on the privileges or immunities clause seemed decisively rebuffed, for all time in Slaughterhouse, well, almost all time, perhaps, the closeness of the decision gave an added spur to arguments for such policy judgments based on the Due Process Clause. Within five years of Slaughterhouse, Justice Miller could complain that the docket of this court is crowded with cases in which counsel offered a strange misconception of the scope of this provision, supposing it to be a means of bringing to the test the merits of the legislation by which various forms of conduct were regulated. Miller and his like-minded colleagues were now fighting a rearguard action for the traditional reading of due process of law. Justice Field, coming to the battle just behind his fellow slaughterhouse dissenters, became the champion of this new reading of due process. And let us be clear at long last, if I have lost you amidst the highways and byways of these cases, about just what this new reading does to the language of the Due Process Clause. By its terms, the clause has nothing to say about the validity of any legislative acts of general application prohibiting or regulating any species of conduct so long as there is no decree, no outright forfeiture or taking of life, physical liberty, or tangible property, and so long as any restraints on conduct imposed by the law 
are administered with due notice of the law's expectations and a procedurally fair opportunity to vindicate oneself. If, on the other hand, any liberty of conduct is held to be unreachable, unrestrainable by any manner of legislation, whether it be butchering animals where one will, contracting for more than 60 hours of work baking bread in a week, or procuring an abortion, then we have left the plain terms of the clause behind and have entered a wholly new realm of judicial power. For after all, the clause clearly states that if a genuine law, not a decree, has been passed, and a process that is fair is employed for its administration, then one may indeed be deprived of one's life, liberty, or property. But by the end of the 19th century, the new dispensation held sway, in which the justices asked, in effect, what liberty shall we protect today, and how much? It was as though the words, due process of law, had vanished from the constitutional text, the clause now reading that no one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property except by a reasonable act of legislation, with the justices the arbiters of what is arbitrary and what is reasonable. Part of the trouble with the new pattern of jurisprudence, with its inquiry into the rational basis of legislative policy choices, was and is its mistaken notion that the arbitrary and the reasonable are opposites. Properly understood, they are nothing of the kind. An act of sovereign power can be both arbitrary and reasonable, or both non-arbitrary and unreasonable. The meaning of arbitrary, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is dependent upon will or pleasure, discretionary, not fixed, capricious, uncertain, varying. To be governed arbitrarily is not, in the nature of things, incompatible with being ruled by reason, even by wisdom, in the making of a succession of particularistic judgments and decrees. In practice, of course, it will almost certainly be an anxious state of affairs, as everyone must guess at the will of the ruler and the next form its expression will take when Solomon does not evidently govern us. Hence, arbitrary rule is the enemy of freedom, which rests heavily on the lawfulness of government and the liberty of choice and of movement that is fostered by a regime that governs by known standing rules of conduct. It is really not that difficult for free governments to avoid arbitrariness most of the time provided the minimal, minimal standards of lawfulness are met in the making and execution of policy. It is quite another matter, and far more difficult, to satisfy everyone's idea of reasonable legislation. We need not turn relativist and declare everyone's opinion as good as the next in order to see that there will naturally be more disagreement about what the laws should be than about whether a given policy has been promulgated and administered in the form and fashion of law. But it is just in the first of these ways that the Supreme Court has periodically interfered over the last century and more in matters that are not its concern. It has confounded the highly unpredictable and decidedly non-judicial business of assessing the rational grounds of public policy with the far simpler and properly judicial business of determining the government's conformity with the rule of law. In the absence of a genuine substantive right that stands in the way, of which there are relatively few in the Constitution, the policy question, what shall be done and not done, 
is legitimately left to, to democratically accountable institutions like legislatures. Their electoral connection, their more open and deliberative nature, and their publication of statutes prior to their effective date provide us with the notice, the knowledge, and the procedural expectations we need as citizens to conform our actions to lawful standards. In its usurpation of the legislative function, the Supreme Court has made itself the most arbitrary institution in American government and the most persistent aggressor against the rule of law. A relatively closed institution with unpredictable small group dynamics and a penchant for non-rule-bound decision-making about public policy questions, the court is forever springing nasty surprises like thunderbolts from Mount Olympus on a people who thought until a moment before that they were freely governing themselves. We are, to a disturbing degree, in the words of the dictionary, dependent on the will or pleasure of any five of the nine justices of the court to know what our powers of self-government are, the precise definition of arbitrariness. That this effect has been achieved in large part through the tortured inversion of the due process clauses, the very provisions designed to prevent arbitrary government and shore up the rule of law, is a particularly cruel irony. As we have seen, due process of law does properly mark out a principled approach to preventing the rule of decrees from usurping the place of the rule of law. And it thereby protects something that may fairly be called a substantive right. What it does not do is authorize courts of law to second guess, undo, and remake the policy judgments of legislatures under a general judicial authority to mete out distributive justice in the name of liberty. But substantive due process wrongly implies a continuity between the former and the latter. Is it too late, after three quarters of a century, to replace substantive due process versus procedural due process with a more descriptively accurate distinction? Perhaps it is. It would be hard to come up with phrases of comparable brevity that are appropriately descriptive of the right and wrong ways to interpret the due process clauses. Something like rule of law due process versus policy judgment due process would be about as close to accurate as we could manage in relatively few words. There is, I'm afraid, little hope for such a reform of the legal vocabulary. But at least we can be alert to the presence of something dangerous when we see it and can pierce its disguise. All we need remember is that clauses of the Constitution intended to secure the integrity of the judicial function from legislative invasion have become tools for the judicial invasion of the legislative function, and that a bulwark against arbitrary decrees has instead become the basis of them. Thank you. Great talk express, I told you. Um, thank you. I, uh, uh, I see there are a number of students here, including a student from Professor George's undergraduate course in constitutional interpretation. It's your lucky day because uh, the Madison program, uh, the rule laid down with the Madison program is that uh, before we open the question period to everyone, we invite any students who are present to ask the first questions. Uh, so I invite students to do so. We've only had two weeks 
Boy, you guys start late here. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I alluded, yeah, uh, student asked uh, what role the uh, Lochner versus New York case has in, in this whole story. I, I alluded to it in passing without naming it uh, in the text of my remarks. Uh, it's the case uh, I was referring to when I mentioned uh, baking bread for 60 hours a week or more. Um, Lochner is, uh, is taken to be the paradigmatic case of that uh, conservative ideological project in the use of substantive due process known as liberty of contract. Uh, Lochner is a very important case, uh, but it is, the, it, is, it is, in a sense, the full flowering of a plant uh, already a generation old in, in the dissents I mentioned in the slaughterhouse rulings and in the developing jurisprudence led by Stephen Field. Uh, Field, in his last... Uh, in his last term on the court, finally saw the victory for this reading of the Due Process Clause in 1897 in Allgaier versus Louisiana. And Allgaier is really the underpinning, the, 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 uh, the locus classicus, if you will, uh, for uh, the Lochner ruling to come eight years later. But Lochner is very important, yeah. Um, that, yeah, that is, that, that is a rational basis ruling. Um, uh, but it was, uh, at the heart of it was the, the notion that one has a right to enter into contracts with other persons um, uh, untrammeled by legislative interference when one is engaged in what the court thinks is harmless economic activity. Allgaier had... Uh, contracted with a New York insurance firm for his business in Louisiana, and that was contrary to Louisiana law, which said you had to do business with a Louisiana insurance company. And, and uh, so that was, but yes, reasonableness was part of it. Uh, one of the interesting things about the reasonableness test or the rational basis test is that it, it appears also in equal protection jurisprudence. And uh, you can see, for instance, in Plessy versus Ferguson, that uh, Justice Brown, for the court, holds that the Louisiana segregation law in the Plessy case is, uh, is reasonable. And Justice Harlan goes ballistic and says, what do we judges have to do with assessing the reasonableness of legislation? Those are preeminently legislative judgments. Those are public policy judgments and not for courts. So there's this, there's this struggle going on uh, under both clauses, jurisprudence at this time, over the emergence of a rational basis test. Yes, the lady next to um, Professor George. Are you familiar with Professor Marcus's defense of Lochner and his I am. Hadley's wrong. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, in fact, I, I noticed that, that, that Professor Arcus had um, a, uh, a letter in the Wall Street Journal recently uh, taking the side of Chief Justice Chase in the legal tender rulings and um, I was I was aghast. Uh, um, Hadley uh, Hadley and I have had this argument for about ten years. Um, I, I disagree sharply with his book Beyond the Constitution um, because I, I don't think uh, it is any business 
of uh, the Supreme Court to import natural law principles not imminent in the text in some, in some textually inferable way uh, into the document and, and say that they're protected, by, especially by a clause that, that just isn't built to do the work, like no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Um, so uh, we've, been, we've been having this friendly argument for a while. But yes, I'm aware of Professor Arcus's argument. Yes. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship? Well, uh, it was held in Calder versus Bull. Oh, repeat the question. What is the relationship between the ex post, ex post facto clause and, uh, and the notion of substantive due process? Is that fair? Okay. Um, the, uh, the ex post facto clause was held in 1798 in Calder versus Bull. Uh, in, uh, in a ruling in which the justices relied upon Blackstone's gloss on this and the commentaries on the laws of England, was held to apply only to um, criminal cases and not uh, to uh, common law cases otherwise, civil, civil cases as we would call them today. Um, I think that was right. I think it was right uh, if one resorts to the text of the ex post facto clause, which is located near the contract clause, uh, at least the ex post facto clause that applies to states, located hard by the, the contract clause in Article I, Section 10, uh, which has its own impact on retrospective legislation. Um, and so if, if, uh, if there are some clauses that manifestly affect non-criminal uh, retrospective legislation, then the ex post facto clause by uh, process of elimination must be uh, confined to uh, to criminal cases, so the so the reasoning went in Calder versus Bull. I find that persuasive, and and think that um, uh, the ex post facto clause is properly so confined. Now, the uh, on the other hand, um, there is there is this to be said about the ex post facto clause's relationship to due process as as I wanted understood, and that is that due process of law encompasses the principle against ex post facto laws. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm confusing myself now. I'm thinking of the Bill of Attainder Clause. I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. I, I, I think that, um, um, I don't think there, there is any, any strong relationship at all between uh, due process and, and ex post facto. There is one between due process and the Bill of Attainder prohibition. Bill of Attainder was a, was a legislative decree that someone's life was forfeit. Um, and uh, lesser forms of legislative decree were known as bills of pains and penalties. And as Webster points out in his Dartmouth College argument, uh, both of those are prohibited by the due process language. So we could actually have uh, neglected to put the Bill of Attainder clause in Article I, Sections 9 and 10, waited to add the Fifth Amendment, and we would have forbidden bills of attainder and then some by virtue of the due process clause. But ex post facto, another, another kettle of fish entirely. Other students?
That's a good question. Um, no, I don't, th I don't think that's the problem. Um, in fact, uh, didn't they kind of uh, tidy up those loose ends just a few years later in uh, United States versus Darby? Is that the case? Um, um, I think it is. I have, to, I have to pause for a second and, and, and make sure I'm not confusing that line of cases with another one from the so-called revolution of 1937. But um, Darby, was, Darby was Commerce Clause. Yeah, Darby was Commerce Clause. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's the problem. You know, in the 1950s, scholars were writing postmortems on, on substantive due process as something the Roosevelt Court had, uh, had killed off for keeps. Unless, of course, one wanted to gather in the emerging line of cases incorporating the Bill of Rights into the general rubric of substantive due process. But, uh, but substantive due process as a sort of roving commission to judge the reasonableness of legislation with respect to liberties not identified anywhere in the text of the Constitution. That was considered dead after West Coast Hotel. Um, what happened, I think, in uh, the 1960s was that when uh, the courts took a turn to the left in cases like Griswold, they found themselves uh, unable for rhetorical reasons to return to straightforward language about um, substantive due process. And so Justice Douglas in the Griswold case invented all this crazy nonsense about penumbras formed by emanations from various provisions of the Bill of Rights to protect one's uh, freedom to uh, buy and sell and use contraception. And, uh, and so out of that matchstick edifice was, was built the, the new right to privacy doctrine, which um, for the next 20, 30 years never referred to substantive due process. It was only the dissenters or the rare, honest, concurring justice like Justice Harlan in the Griswold case, who would say, you know what you're really doing? What you're really doing is a new form of substantive due process. It's just left-wing substantive due process, not right-wing substantive due process. Well, after a while, I think the justices tired of the charade of calling these uh, right to privacy rulings. And in uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, and then three years ago in Lawrence versus Texas, um, uh, the court, maybe this is Justice Kennedy's influence. Uh, they've, they've gone back to uh, directly stating uh, the rulings as grounded on some notion of substantive due process. So we're back to a, a form of liberty protected by the due process clause rather than a form of property protected by uh, a grab bag of clauses. In the back, yes. Not entirely. Um, substantive pol public policy choices are to be made by legislatures. And if, if they don't run afoul of, of actual substantive rights, like free exercise of religion or freedom of speech, um, th those, are, those are choices within the competence of a legislature. Um, the legislature, first and foremost, decides matters of, of procedure in the, in the execution or the administration of the law. Uh, but it is for the courts to inquire into whether the procedures specified by the legislature are due process 
or not. The classic case on this is 1855 or 6, Murray's Lessee versus Hoboken Land and Improvement, um, in which uh, uh, the, the question was not whether a policy choice made by Congress was valid, but whether uh, uh, a process for carrying out the law that seemed to some rather unorthodox or you know, not contemplated within the four corners of the Bill of Rights was, uh, was nevertheless due process of law. And the court decided that, that, it was, that it was, that it was a process that gave notice, heard before condemning, gave the person a chance to vindicate himself, and so on. So, so legislatures have a role in deciding questions of process, but I think the final authority on whether the process works to assure people that they're not being governed by decree is for courts to settle. Uh, <laughs> okay. In the back, yes. I was wondering, you, you talked about the separation of powers, and what I'd like to hear you comment upon is the role of the executive, and particularly a contemporary issue. What is the role of due process vis-a-vis uh -huh. -vis the war powers clause in the writ of habeas corpus, where you have Persons. I'm wondering what your position is as to whether there is a violation of due process here in the terms that you use. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure who it is you are supposing might be violating due process. The executive, yes? Okay. Okay. Well, well, the, first of all, you, you, you made a reference to the War Powers Clause, and I'm not sure what clause you might mean because there's there's Congress's power to declare war and raise armies and navies and, 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 and write the regulations that govern the armed forces. And then there's the president's power as commander-in-chief. Um, talking about the president's yeah. power. And president's the power. As executive and chief in terms of whether he has to respond to this of habeas corpus that may or may not be I think it, yeah. Um, first of all, I, I think the, the court has has a has a power to issue the writ that is bounded by relevant legislative acts, um, and it it troubles me when the court sees fit to issue the writ in circumstances uh, outside the bounds of those legislative acts, as I think they did in Razul uh, uh, versus Bush uh, in 2004. Um, uh, I, I think the, the precedents and the relevant statute uh, suggested in that case that the court had, had no business uh, authorizing the issuance of writs of habeas corpus for the detainees at Guantanamo Bay. Um, Congress could, of course, uh, expand the reach of the writ of habeas corpus to such persons. And uh, now it's effectively doing so, I think, in the legislation that has been arrived at by compromise between the president and Senator McCain and others. Um, as a general rule, when the, uh, when the, when the court um, issues a writ of habeas corpus, I would say that the president is obliged to, uh, to respond lawfully to the writ. But I say generally because I'm aware of uh, the case in which uh, President Lincoln declined to do so, and in my view, rightly declined to do so. 
because he had a, a darn good argument that it was within his authority while Congress was not in session to suspend the writ as to certain persons and places in time of war. Um, so uh, these things are, 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 are messy and complicated and, and, and contingent upon time, place, and circumstance. I, I, I wouldn't want to utter a, a general principle that, that the executive is in all circumstances subservient to courts, whatever they say on these subjects. Bill? Thank you. I want to return you to the student's question, however, about the ex post facto. Okay. And you responding to it brought up part of what I wanted to emphasize, namely the relationship between this and sort of the change of law to a prohibition of impartial application of contracts, having the negative rules of the jury trial, all of which taken together in the body of the Constitution. Right. Now, my argument goes to the fact that your discussion is about amendments to the Constitution. Yes. So you're asking me, uh, would I be content with the conclusion that we could have done without the Bill of Rights? <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've been known to say to my students that of the 27 amendments we have, I'd be content with dispensing with all but about two of them. And then, of course, they want to know which two. Um, I like the 12th and 13th, and that's about it. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, judicial imperialism was a long time coming to be in this country. And it was uh, not necessary that it come to be as it has. Um, there's a lot of elements to the story, including uh, the invention of the law school at that other Ivy League university, setting an example that I notice Princeton has conspicuously declined to follow, uh, having a law school bully for Princeton. Um, so, uh, yeah, legal education, um, the, uh, uh, and here I'll, I'll, I'll sound like I agree with Professor Arcus, whom I disagreed with earlier, uh, the decline of uh, belief in the natural rights teaching of the founding, which in my view un undergirds um, the constraints on judicial as well as other powers under the Constitution. Uh, these are all things that are relevant. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm inclined by nature and by habit toward reverence for the Constitution and, and, and inclined against tinkering with it. But I, I, I think that it may be time to think of some relatively drastic measures with respect to the Supreme Court. I'm more and more a fan than I ever was of FDR's court packing plan in 1937, <laughs> for instance. Uh, except I'd like to go it one farther and say that while we expand the Supreme Court's 
seats from 9 to 15. We uh, give them 15-year terms so that we choose a new justice every year in a rotation scheme. Um, that's my idea for reform. And, uh, uh, but, you know, there, there, are, there are tools available to us in the Constitution other than, um, you know, repealing the Bill of Rights. Um, there, uh, there's, there's judicial reform. There's, uh, there's the exercise of legislative authority over the jurisdiction of the court. Uh, there's the impeachment power, much neglected. Jefferson was right about few things on the subject of the Constitution, but he was right when he said that after the Chase impeachment, in which Chase, I think, was rightly acquitted, but Jefferson was right to say that impeachment was thereafter a scarecrow, um, uh, nothing at all in, uh, uh, in terms of its potential as a, uh, as a form of retaliation against justices of the court. Yes, sir. It is. And which forbade and made criminal the selling of contraceptives mm -hmm. to life. Mm -hmm. Now, granted that uh, Douglas used, uh, in his indicta, used unfortunate language like emanation or something. Oh, those weren't, those were, those were holdings, not dicta. Okay. Um, but the court, by its split decision, um, struck down the law. Right. And it gave a number of reasons and cited a number of precedents. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, um, Douglas's majority opinion was based on the concept of liberty, and he cited a number of previous cases. Oh, absolutely. By legislatures. The expression liberty in the due process clause is not an utterance in a context that authorizes judges to expand and contract the scope of our substantive rights according to circumstance. The concept, the, the the word liberty in the due process clause is a reference to incarceration for breach of law. That's it. That's all it is. And the question, the only question, the only proper question when a litigant makes an argument under the due process clause with respect to his liberty is, is he now or does he face the prospect of being slapped behind bars as a result of a decree or as a result of a lawful judgment. That's it. What freedom you and I have otherwise than that to be bound or not bound by this or that law is no part of proper adjudication under the due process clause, but is a business for legislative judgments of public policy. 
Oh, I wasn't suggesting that I preferred one to the other. Um, I, don't, I don't like it, uh, and I, I, I don't like it because it's a, it, it seems to me a, a backdoor smuggling in of the notion of a living constitution. I'm all for uh, a living constitution, but it, uh, uh, it, it is adapted for ages to come, as Marshall said, by, uh, by legislation, uh, not by uh, courts adjudicating these matters. Um, you know, many of the Many of the features of what we know as due process were developed first by courts acting on their own to ensure that the Crown um, supplied people with notice and, and, and process before it deprived them of life, liberty, or property. So there's, there's, you know, there's, there's real value in that common law legacy for the emergence of the full panoply of, of those procedures that are due in the due process of law. Uh, but, it's, it's a, it, but it's another matter, and I don't think you'll find any endorsement in, in Bacon or Cook or Blackstone. And I know about Bonham's case, but I read it rather differently than some do. Um, I don't think there's any warrant in, in those English legal thinkers or in the, or in the cases they reported or, or, or summarized in their treatises, any warrant for uh, uh, the judges second-guessing uh, public policy choices made by the parliament. Um, Blackstone says that, uh, uh, and, and whose common law credentials are better than his, that, uh, that if Congress shall positively legislate that which is unreasonable, the judges are bound by it nonetheless. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's why I'm going back. I'm curious about your thesis connecting due process with separation of powers, because initially didn't we have a lot of... Oh, yes, yes. I think, I think, that's, I think that's right. Uh, but the, but the, courts were, the courts were conspicuously the experts for the, um, for the development of principles that supplied people with notice, hearing, uh, writ, uh, call to answer, and so on. And so when the other branches acted in the way that the, the developing British Constitution enabled them to act, 
uh, when the king and when the king and parliament acted, um, his uh, their acts, the parliament's acts, had to be funneled through the processes of the common law that assured notice and calling to answer and and uh, you know prior notification of what the law is. Um, the you know the hallmark of due process of law is um, is uh, knowledge and uh, two hallmarks are knowledge and general application. And the courts very ably supplied both whenever they were engaged in their own enunciation of emerging principles in new cases. Uh, and, there, and, and think about think about the doctrine of precedent that is at the heart of the common law tradition. Uh, it is itself a break, a, a, a restraint on judicial arbitrariness in, a restraint on the reaching out to say something altogether new and unexpected by the parties in a case because the parties could come into court expecting that with knowledge of the law um, they would receive a certain kind of treatment. And if they were to receive a, a new kind of treatment unexpected hitherto, uh, they would be given reasons by the court that connected the present case with past cases, distinguished it where necessary, reversed old judgments that were unreasonable where that was necessary, and set a new framework for the next case for which today's would be a precedent. So all of this, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you, you raise an important point. Yeah. Yes, yes, okay. Well, uh, I, I don't think one has to be Pollyannish about uh, legislative wisdom or the soundness of, say, you know, congressional or state legislative deliberations uh, to, uh, to take the position I espouse. Um, first, I'll note that the, uh, that the imperialism of the judiciary over constitutional questions has bred a corresponding irresponsibility about such questions in Congress and the state legislatures. We'll just you know, drop kick that football to, to courts of law. And we might see a, a, a return of serious constitutional discourse to legislatures. I'm not holding my breath, but we might if we, uh, if we induced courts to engage in less bossing around on these matters. Um, uh, I, I, would, I would say, that, though, that as a, just, just as, a, as a historical matter, um, it seems plain to me, although if I, when I state it this way, it may sound surprising to some of you. It seems plain to me that in the last 150 years, the Supreme Court of the United States has violated the Constitution scores of times. And I have trouble thinking of the last time the Congress did so. Honestly, I have, I have, real, I have real difficulty identifying the last occasion on which the Congress of the United States I'd have to think about it for a minute. Late 1980s? It's almost 20 years. Yeah. Oh, I, um, let me, let me, Robbie, let me, let me suggest that, uh, um, 
All right, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that one with this proviso, with this proviso, that there are violations of the Constitution and then there are violations of the Constitution. Uh, category A is um, those violations of the Constitution that it is our business to correct by throwing the bums out. Category B is those violations of the Constitution that are the proper, the bus proper business of the Supreme Court to rectify. And, I, and uh, as, as I think you know, I don't think the campaign finance uh, law falls into category B. You know, it's a lousy law. George Will is, you know, uh, I love reading his columns on campaign finance, on McCain-Feingold. Uh, um, I think he's got it right. Uh, but I would actually be more bothered by the Supreme Court striking down the law than by the law itself. Yeah. Yes, uh, most of the Supreme Court's decisions for a long time now have been appellate rulings. Very few cases come to the court's docket as an original matter. So, so I guess your question is, um, uh, isn't the, the, the element of surprise very much attenuated by the fact that the case has been adjudicated in lower, co lower courts previous to the Supreme Court's determination? Yes, I, I think it is, and I think we can, um, we get, um, that tingle back here of the hair standing up on the back of our necks when the court agrees to docket a case, or, you know, that is to, uh, to accept certiorari or, or, uh, and, and, uh, and hear a case for full argument. Sometimes uh, the court will do that and will say, aha, four justices at least think that there's something real here where maybe most of us wouldn't have thought so. Um, for instance, um, a year or so ago, uh, the Supreme Court decided that no one under the eight, no one under the age of 18 could be subjected to uh, the death penalty in this country. Roper versus Simmons. This uh, overturned Stanford versus Kentucky, 1989. Okay, just 16 years between the cases. There was really nothing. I mean, certainly the Constitution didn't change on this question between 1989 and 2005. That's what I would call a surprise. The fact that it was uh, not actually astonishing that such a foolish decision was issued by the Supreme Court is um, not quite the surprise I meant. Um, uh, the, when the court, accepted, when, when the court uh, accepted certiorari, it signaled that it was going to seriously reconsider this question. And then it became the usual guessing game. What will Kennedy and O'Connor do? Uh, they are the ones who have kept our constitutional law surprising um, <laughs> because they are the probably the most unprincipled justices of roughly the last century.
No. There's a, well, there's a, there's a lot to be said on, on this subject. Um, uh, I hope Robbie's students are learning about the political questions doctrine in Kahn and Turb. Okay. Um, I probably have uh, the most capacious version of the political questions doctrine, anyone I know, um, because um, it would cover the entire First Amendment, for instance. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that the First Amendment uh, with the exception of the right to petition for redress of grievances. I don't think the First Amendment poses one justiciable question. One question fit for adjudication by a court of law. Not, not one, aside from the right to petition for redress of grievances. And, and the clue is, the clue is, the cl no, forget that. The clue is that clause after clause after clause speaks not of anyone's right, but of freedoms to this or that, freedom of speech, the free exercise of religion, freedom of press. And I don't know how a court can get its grip on that and do the business that courts from time immemorial have been competent to do, which is the adjudication of rights, wrongs, and remedies. I, I just, I don't, I don't know how they do it. Uh, privacy, uh, privacy is not a word that appears in the Constitution anywhere, as you know, I'm sure. And to the extent that we can infer something about privacy from things the Constitution does say, uh, yeah, uh, Justice Douglas in the Griswold case is, is, is right to say that there are elements of privacy protected by the Third Amendment, by the Fourth Amendment, um, by the Fifth Amendment. Um, but... Um, the right to privacy that was manufactured in Griswold and perfected, as it were, in Roe, Casey, Lawrence, is, uh, is much more than the sum of those parts. And, and so then the question for me becomes, what supplies the absent parts? Um, as I see it, the, the, part, the parts are manufactured by a court hungry to decide these questions, notwithstanding America's Republican tradition of deciding these questions for itself. reception uh, with Professor Frank outside. Uh, before we break up, I just wanted to uh, announce our next public event, which is a conference, an all-day conference on October 20th. Uh, it's a conference that is uh, inspired by the, uh, the uh, 20th anniversary 